This is Rogue Leader, checking in from Sierra Golf Uniform Mission Control. I need a news item status report. Please identify. Echo 3 to Echo 7. Panel, buddy, do you read me? Uh, I mean, Steve, this is Rogue 4. Copy. Yeah, Rogue 5 here, I guess. I, I don't know, I'm here. Why do we have to talk like this, Steve? Steve? This is uh, Rogue Leader, Rogue 5. Call me Rogue Leader. Can you please identify? That means uh, use your code name. Over. Yeah, I'm refusing your stupid order. Over. This is Rogue Mandelbrot. Over. Rogue Mandelbrot, I don't recognize your call sign. Use your issued designation. Over. (sighs) This is Rogue 2. If any of the other rogues want to call me Rogue Mandelbrot, feel free. It's much cooler than friggin' Rogue 2. Rogue 1, come in, Rogue 1. Do you copy? Over. Has anyone talked to Rogue 1 recently? You mean J, right? Is Rogue One J? We have names already, Steve. I, I seriously do not understand this. This is Rogue One. I copy. I'm at 42,000 feet, coming in over San Diego. Rogue One, are you go for a news item? Roger that, Rogue Leader. I'm covering the death of Dwayne Gish. Over. Over what? His dead body? Cut the unnecessary chatter on this frequency, Rogue Two. What is your news item? Over. I'm talking about carbon nanotubes and solar panels and new battery technology. Are they charging those new batteries with solar panels made out of carbon nanotubes? How cool! That's a negative Rogue 2. No one wants to hear about any news items on those topics from us uh, ever again. Rogue 2 should push that idea out the airlock. Over. Uh, Rogue 4, will you give me a news item status update, please? Uh, roger that. I've got plants talking to animals. That's a negative on that one, Rogue 4. I've got latest paranormal belief statistics from the United Kingdom. Uh, that's a negative two. I've got bee venom killing the HIV. Nope. Over. Uh, 3D printing replaces 75% of a man's skull. That's a negative on that one, Rogue Four. Uh, how about people can live to be 150 years old? That's a go on that last one, Rogue Four. Rogue Five, and you still need a status report on your news items, over. Yeah, I want to talk about this sloth that got its makeup done uh, on a TV show. It's great. Sloth on a TV show, over? Yeah, it's like a it's a sloth that they brought in from the zoo, and they put in a makeup chair, and they put makeup on it. I, that's what I want to talk about. Uh, maybe we'll put that on the, uh, the back burner there, Rogue 5. Rogue 1 to Rogue Leader, come in. Rogue Leader here, go ahead, Rogue 1. Permission to fly my ship into Rogue 2, over. That's a negative, Rogue 1. Uh, cut the shit, over. This is overdone. Over. I'll take Rogue 4 for a thousand. Over. Oh, yeah? Over? We are ready to go with Mission 400. You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, March 13th, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. 400! And Evan Bernstein. Trononam Mahu. Trononam Mahu to you. Is that 400 in another language? What is that? Oh, that's actually good evening in Irish Gaelic, not to be confused with Scottish Gaelic. I almost made that mistake. Never me. And it's a good thing. I, I mean, that would have been embarrassing. There's two right? Gaelics? I didn't know that. Steve, remember? <laughs> I don't, was it an email you got? Somebody talking about Brave, mm-hmm. the movie Brave? 
and the, and how they didn't like how it depicted Irish people. Oh, yeah, yeah right, yeah. right. <laughs> really? Wait, where did you see that? We got an email. Oh, did we? About, yeah, they didn't like the way oh, the Irish <laughs> were presented in the movie Brave, which was about... Why would someone send us an email? <laughs> I don't understand. I think we, we talked about it on the show, if did I recall. Because, so, Rebecca, everything we talk about, we own. That's <laughs> our fault. Uh, no, I chose, I chose that language because um, we have St. Patrick's Day afoot, so... Oh, right. Are we going to bust out our, our fake stage Irish? Nope. No? <laughs> nope. Maybe later in the Nothing show. Nothing to bust nope. out. Goes. What did he say? <laughs> He's after me looking charms. As, as Jay blurted out during his introduction, this is our 400th episode. It's nuts. 400. Wow. Holy last crack. Week, I screwed up last week and I jumped the gun. I thought it was 400. For some reason, I got excited. <laughs> yeah, Jay. We, well, we there's remember. that lost episode that – no, no, no. There's that lost episode that never made it to air. You know, the one I'm talking oh, about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The one under Steve's, under Steve's mm-hmm. mattress. So The lost – Maybe we the did lost really episode. record 400 episodes. <laughs> Congrats to everybody. Yeah, you guys. Yeah, the consistency, I think, is what is um, extremely rare. But yeah, guys, I got to tell you. But we I love it. Say, we yeah, do love it. it is. It's, I, we, I totally love my time that I put into this. It's, it's, it's fun. You know, it's, it's very creative. It's challenging. It's painful. All mixed together. Did you know that the year 400 was the year that chrysanthemums were introduced into Japan? <laughs> Wow. I didn't know that. Know that and I, I will probably forget it in five minutes. I've already forgotten. I know four hundred I knew four hundred is the square of twenty. Mm-hmm. This is correct. Mm-hmm. And a circle is divided into four hundred grads, which is equal to three hundred sixty degrees, right? Jay, do you know what an HTTP error four hundred is? I do. Absolutely. Hi- Hypertext transfer <laughs> of protocol. Of course I do. It's a it's a it's when a page can't be found. Four hundred error. Four hundred Oh, right. <laughs> That's like the main one. <laughs> the bad requests. Oh, yeah. those four, 404s? Oh, I hate the 404. Uh, you know that a lot of sites, when, when a request is made on a domain, what they do is they'll, they'll capture that 400 error and they'll show you a page. And there's a whole website dedicated to copying these funny 400 error pages that websites do. And uh, I can't remember any of the funny ones I saw, but they're so clever. Like, just they, they take the error. Like, you know, one of them was Star Trek related where there, there was like a transporter error and they show like the people all kind of screwed up in the transporter like half. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I hate when that on, happens. On Google, it's really fun to see those 400 error, the best of 400 error pages. Or on Bing. Look it up on Bing. <laughs> if you want to. <laughs> just, just saying. Well... We do have a great show for you, our number 400. We're going to start, as we usually do, with This Day in Skepticism, Rebecca. Yeah. All right. Let's set the stage, you guys. It's early 1912. Okay. You are part of the Terra Nova expedition to the South Pole, an effort led by uh-huh. Robert Falcon Scott. Wait, wait. I thought Terra Nova went back in time to the time of the dinosaurs. No, that was just a terrible short-lived TV show. Oh, that's right. Is that still on? <laughs> no. No, can't no. be. Yeah, okay. So you arrived at the South Pole in December of 1911, only to find that the Norwegians beat you to it by a solid month. So you turned around and you marched back, only to find horrific weather, scurvy, other illnesses, injuries, and diminishing food supplies. And come March, one person is already dead – and if the rest don't make it to safety soon, everybody's going to die. And that's so, when the thing attacked, right? Because they already killed the Norwegians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that I think, did happen in the recent thing ep- 
adaptation, but I'm not positive because much like everyone else, I didn't watch it. I don't, I don't know uh, what it is, like but the rest it's weird. Of the world, nobody off. saw it. <laughs> so Captain Lawrence Oates, who was on the team to handle the ponies, had become weak and ill and frostbitten. And he told everybody else, go on without me. And they refused. They said, all right. So oh. on the morning of March 16th, 1912, Oates got up and walked out the tent, never to be seen again. And before he left, he said, I am just going outside and maybe some time, thereby giving English folks for the following century the best possible thing to say when going out for milk during a particularly bad rainstorm. So his sacrifice was awesome, but ultimately all for naught since everyone else in the party died 20 miles later. But it was still pretty badass. So how do they know he said that if everyone else died? They kept diaries. You oh, dummy. They wrote that down before they died. Yeah. And in fact, uh, according to Oates' diary, he loathed Scott. Yeah. I remember we, despite I was reading the, that. Yeah. D- despite <laughs> his sacrifice. He, he mother fracked him up and down. Although he, he also said at one point that maybe I'm just in a bad mood because I'm in friggin' Antarctica. Right. Maybe it's the frostbite <laughs> right, talking. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah but I feel be like the person <laughs> leading us is incompetent. <laughs> Maybe it's the slow embrace of death talking here, but this sucks. Yeah, I think I think you could forgive him for being a little cranky. Worst expedition ever. 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 <laughs> it really was. Like, oh, can you imagine, you know, embarking on this grand expedition that will, you know, very likely cost you your life and you make it, you make it to the South Pole only to find out that some Norwegians beat you there. Ouch. And then dying <laughs> on the way back. I mean, that part sucked too. So right before the, the guy dies, he's like, this really sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but they had that that exploration spirit. They that, did. That Excelsior spirit. Excelsior. Excelsior. Yeah, for, yeah, that, for whatever's that yes. worth, which is exactly nothing. So they got that going for them. <laughs> which is good. <laughs> which is nice. Yeah. Which is nice. That's, that's a nice footnote. <laughs> All right, Bob. On a on a much happier note, though, you're going to tell us about life on meteorites, maybe even alien life, or maybe not. <laughs> so here's a new story. The first nanosecond you read it, you're like, you're thinking, "Holy crap!" I mean, is this could this be possibly true? How awesome would that be? Uh, some of the titles were: astrobiologists find ancient fossils in fireball fragments. Another one was: astrobiologists claim meteorite carried space algae. And uh, but th- then you think, well, if really if that were true, right, that would be the news item of the century at least, if not the millennium, and uh, and people, everyone would be talking about it. It'd be all over the internet, which which it wasn't. So so it, you know, I'm thinking, well, what the hell's really going on here? Because I'm used to these news items that that seem pretty awesome, but clearly aren't. But that that is the claim that's being made by scientists at Cardiff University in the UK. And it all started with this fireball that uh, blew up over a uh, Sri Lankan province called uh, Polonarua on December 29th, 2012. I didn't even hear about that one. Uh, there was, I looked at some of the police reports from, that came out of that. People were claiming that they were burned by meteorites and that they were, they were fumes, these weird fumes that even caused someone to pass out apparently and had to be taken to the hospital. And right there, that's, that's gotta raise some skeptical eyebrows because, because meteors, it's dumb. yeah, meteors generally are not hot. <laughs> you know, they're, they're traveling in space and they're close to absolute zero. So a brief little uh. journey 
fiery journey through the atmosphere isn't going to make that much of a difference. And and it does and it conducts heat very well typically. Yeah, so you definitely by, need by the to time you preheat uh, those first. <laughs> right. By the time you get there, they are they are not hot. They're generally pretty pretty cold. And uh, the fumes, the whole thing with the fumes is silly. I just think of these weird science fiction movies from like the the 50s and the 60s where the meteor hits and they're hot and they've got these weird alien fumes coming out. Just like just those two things right there. Like, whoa, what's going on here? Well, so what happened was they found, allegedly, they found 628 of these little meteorite fragments that allegedly came from this this meteor. And uh, they sent it off to Cardiff University. And the scientists there were studying it. They used uh, electronic micro. Doctor Who is. <laughs> That's right. He's he's called the Doctor. He's not actually called <laughs> Doctor Who. Sorry. <laughs> Thank right, you for right. stopping doctor. that flood of emails. That I was yeah, about to get. Doctor, we'll, we'll still get them. <laughs> so they they're looking at these at these uh, little bits of meteorite, and they find fossils of algae deep inside. Specifically, they were diatoms. Um, I think that's how that's pronounced. Diatomes. So, diatomes, really. Uh, specifically, this, these are, this is single-celled plant life all over the planet. Uh, the cell walls specifically for these are, are made of silica, so it's kind of interesting. So what came from this was the declaration by the scientists that life on Earth must, must have had some extraterrestrial origin, so-called panspermia. And uh, I think that seemed a little bit, you know, jumping the gun a little bit. But the science fails here are pretty, pretty big. There's so many red flags and signs that yet again, it's very, it's just way too premature to go to public with something like this. I keep thinking of, uh, of cold fusion and, uh, and other, other similar things where these guys just, they just like totally jumped the gun and, uh, did not do their due diligence. Uh, two things, Bob, two things. First of yeah. all, I confirmed it is diatoms. Thank you. Okay. And- uh, this is worse than being premature. <laughs> this is bad science. These guys did a crappy job. Exactly, and I'll, I'll go. I'll, I'll explain why it was actually uh, not only premature but very bad science. One of the key things they they should have done, maybe the, one of the first things they should have done, is to show that this these things came from a meteorite. You know, without a shadow of a doubt, or as, as conclusively as, as can be done. You know, they didn't even really even do that. Let alone show that it came from the one from Sri Lanka. Now, I think that they they looked at over 600, and only three of them did they say came from a carbonaceous chondrite, um, which is a type of meteorite. But in the, in the opinion of many, they didn't even do that to a sufficient degree. So that that was key. You have to show, like, hey, this is from a meteorite because these diatomes are everywhere. They're all over. They're all over the place. You can't just find them, find these fossils and say, looks like it came from meteorites. So therefore, panspermia, blah, blah. The other big thing that they totally blew was the whole concept of contamination, which is a huge, huge problem. And they did not seem to take that seriously enough at all. They were saying that, um, the, uh, the fossils inside were too deep inside the, uh, inside the, the, the rocky fragments. And, uh, but the thing is that that doesn't matter. And if they even just consulted somebody who's familiar with this stuff, they'd say that doesn't matter. The tiniest little crevice or crack these guys can get into. You could crack it open and find something in the very, very middle of it, but it doesn't matter because they could still get in there. It doesn't mean that it's ancient and been, uh, you know, accreting around these fossils for millennia and thousands and millions of years. Uh, so related to that, they just, they didn't consult with the experts in the relevant fields. You know, bring in a meteor expert. If you're going to convince the world that you found life from another planet, algae no less, similar to Earth's algae, you, you know, you gotta, you know, cross all your T's and dot all your I's. Bring in some experts. Consult with outside labs. Don't do this all on your own because you just look really silly, especially when 
you know, the overwhelming probability that people are just going to say, no, you're just way off. And here's why. One, two, three, four. Bob, how'd, how'd they get this published in a peer-reviewed journal? Ah, there you go. This, I call this section, I call this section the, the Journal of Doubt. They published it in the Journal of Cosmology. I mean, we've mentioned this before. It's a not a respected journal. They're, they're known to have very, very loose submission guidelines. They, it's they a published- rag. Yeah, absolutely. They published a paper in 2009 about, about the meteor with a fossil-like cyanobacteria in it. I mean, this is like the same journal and I think the same people that are actually trying mm-hmm. to push this stuff. So that, so they're right, right there. Another huge, huge red flag. Don't go to the Journal of Cosmology. It sounds kind of authoritative, maybe, but if you know anything about it, it's not. Also, another interesting point that should be considered, I think, is one of the co-authors, Chandra Wickramasinghe, he was the first guy to actually propose, that I'm aware of, to propose this whole idea of panspermia back in 1981. And from what I could gather, a lot of skeptics claim that this guy is somewhat fanatical about this. I mean, all right, it's your, it's your idea. Of course, you're going to, it's going to be your, your pet idea and very protective of it. But apparently he's, this guy's really got some blinders on when it comes to this. And he often, or has been shown in the past to ignore evidence that's contradictory, which is, which is just a really human nature. But, and this is what science and critical thinking are designed to protect against. When you insulate yourself from the process and, and procedures of real science, you run the risk of, uh, of being laughed at sometimes and having people call it tabloid science because you, you just have not done your homework. This has happened before with this guy and with this journal. And, uh, but a lot of people, I wonder if a lot of people are thinking that, yeah, we've been invaded by algae. So I'll close with uh, my favorite title from Red Orbit. It was Algae from Outer Space. It's probably just bad science. Exactly. Probably. Wow. That's prophetic. Thank God, because it'd be like Day of the Triffids, but more boring. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, when bad science like this comes out, to me, it smacks of people wanting to believe in something. There's a lot of conclusions that they could have jumped to that weren't so crazy or so you know wonderful if you you know for lacking a better way to describe it because it is pretty wonderful and amazing well i mean i think it's reasonable to assume that that's the baseline that every scientist wants their theory to be true and wants to find something interesting and important and we just assume that that's the case that everyone's biased that the point is to design rigorous studies so that you minimize the effects of that bias, that you rule it out as much as possible. And that's when, you know, if you haven't done that, of course your bias comes through. That's what science is designed to protect against. But speaking of motivated reasoning, Jay, uh, you're going to tell us about Dwayne Gish. Can I just say that some somebody on Twitter uh, said that I was literally Hitler for constantly pointing out when Steve makes a uh, a bad segue. <laughs> literally held Hitler. <laughs> literally? Awesome. Well, they were they were they were literally kidding, okay. But, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, the young Earth creationist Dwayne T. Gish. He died on March fifth, two thousand thirteen. He was ninety two years old. He had a Whoa. good run. It's a he good age. Galloped into heaven. Yeah, right. You, yeah, you did coin sure that did. phrase, Rebecca. I read that. Yeah. So I thought I'd just throw it out there again. <laughs> he <Respect>. was uh, <laughs> is born on February seventeenth, nineteen twenty one, in White City, Kansas. He served in the U.S. Army uh, from nineteen forty to forty six in the Pacific Theater of Operations. He became a captain, which I didn't know. He, in 1949, he earned a Bachelor's of Science in Chemistry from the University of California, and in 53, he went on to get his Ph.D. from Berkeley. He spent the next 14 or so years as a researcher 
until 1971, when what, guys? He became the vice president of? The ICR, the Institute for Creation Research. That's right. Which was founded only a year earlier by Henry Morris. Gish retired in 2005. He still, of course, kept busy. Uh, he, he was still writing. He was a Methodist from the age of 10, and he later became a fundamentalist Baptist. He wrote a lot of books. He wrote uh, uh, the one he was most famous for was titled Evolution, the Fossils Say No. That was published in 1978. Uh, I actually have and read most of that book. Yeah. Oh, you did? Well, would you lose a bet? No, you know, yeah. got to read what the other side's saying too. You know what I mean? That's true. And it's the this was in the time before the internet. I know that's yeah. Hard no, to believe. Was, yeah, back in like the early eighties when I read it. In 1995, he also wrote "Evolution: The Fossils Still Say No." <laughs> He's not <laughs> listening very well. That seems to uh, to me that's his oh yeah book you know like yeah but of course guys and everyone listening to this show or at least most of the people know that he is best known for the mighty gish gallop which he which is described as his technique that he used during a debate to quickly fire off tons of misinformation that can't possibly be properly discussed by the person that he's arguing against right like so he brings up one idea that would take someone maybe 10 or 15 minutes to go over and to disprove or discredit. But he'll come up, he'll, he'll spill out 30 or 40 of these things in a series in a very short amount of time. Guys, I didn't know this, and I'm surprised I didn't. Did you know, do you know who coined the phrase Gish Gallop? Jeannie Scott. Jeannie Scott. How awesome. Jeannie. Jeannie. Mother f- Scott. She is so awesome. She coined she said, it? This is her quote. It's where the creationist is allowed to run on for 45 minutes or an hour, spewing forth torrents of error that the evolutionist hasn't a prayer of refuting in the format of a debate. A prayer. Hey, Steve, That's do you awesome. remember when we had uh, doc- Dr. Michael Park come and lecture for, uh, for the New England mm-hmm. Skeptics Society? And he told us about his experience in debating Dwayne yeah, Gish. Yeah, I remember that very well. Yeah, Gish also debated Michael Shermer. I actually yeah. listened to that entire debate on tape, uh, and he yeah. debated Massimo Piliucci five times. Yeah. Whoa. That's right. Five. I thought he debated Shermer a bunch of times too, didn't he? I thought he was one of those like maybe Hitchens D'Souza sort of things. They just tool around. Gish claimed that he he entered into more than three hundred debates during his career, which is quite a bit. Um, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't Probably. have been surprised though if that if he said eight hundred because it just always seemed like he was violently debating someone. You know, overall, I classify him as just someone that was phenomenally misguided that that had a belief that he was trying to qualify for his entire life and could never admit to himself that the science does disprove it. Yeah, but you know, he was intellectually very dishonest uh, because he would be factually refuted. He would say things that were factually wrong. Those factual errors would be pointed out to him in no uncertain terms. And the next night he'd give the same talk and repeat the same error that he was just corrected on. He just didn't care about the facts. Yeah. I mean, he obviously wasn't stupid. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's really only one option left. <laughs> if you're not stupid, but you're continuing to repeat the same uh, false information over and over and over again, and you're just dishonest. He would have throngs of followers uh, travel around in buses from one lecture to another. 
and they would help pack the auditoriums and have his own cheering and rooting wow, sessions. Wow, isn't that so, nice? Groupies. With, with Bibles in hand, sort of, you know, sort of cheering him on as, as he would go. So it always maybe seemed like that, you know, some, at least half of the audience maybe, you know, is in sync with his points of view on these, on these matters. But it was staged, yeah. you know, they were essentially shills. And shills. he made popular, again, I don't know if he originated a lot of these arguments, but he made popular a lot of common creationist arguments like evolution violates the second law of thermodynamics. Ah. Uh. Which we've spoken about, it doesn't, uh, or that Archaeopteryx was just a bird, just a, just one of the forms that a birds take. You know, they with teeth and tails. <laughs> one teeth terrifying and, yeah. form. That a bird <laughs> <Right. takes. laughs> it flew. It was but a those bird. Those are good eh? examples of a comment that's so easy to hear and even believe, and it's also a comment that would take quite a bit of information to yeah. show why it's wrong. And he, he spewed these things out during debates and was blowing the hair back of the people that were trying to respond to him and respond to the things that he was saying. He just couldn't keep up with the guy. If, if, if he showed one, you know, one good thing that came out of that was he, he really proved that these types of debates are horrible forms. Yeah. This is not the kind of thing you want to get into unless – Unless it's set up properly and focused and designed not to not to allow people to go off on ta- tangents and do the you know the gish gallop. Yeah, he, he he made us, he made skeptics get better at debating and better at choosing the venue and the format of confrontations yeah. like that. He evolved our approach. Yeah, um, <laughs> probably the you. nicest thing you could say about him. Donald Prothero yeah. wrote about it. He debated Gish as well, and he wrote about it on Skeptic Blog. If you want a, a firsthand account, and again, he talks a lot about how. Um, Intellectually dishonest he was as well. Uh, so no more Dwayne Gish, but I can almost guarantee you we have not seen the end of the Gish Gallop. Imagine no, that. No. That's your legacy. That's his legacy, the Gish Gallop. Well, to skeptics and to scientists. Well, let's move on. This week I wrote a couple of articles about acupuncture. Acupuncture is just the uh, alternative medicine that won't go away. I think it, it, in my from my perspective, I think it's the one that has managed to gain the most respectability among the mainstream scientific community. More than chiropractic? Yeah, I think so. I think even 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 perhaps more than chiropractic. Although that's probably – they're probably close. In terms of you know, if you ask like the average physician, what do you think about acupuncture? You know, a lot of them say they – they probably don't think about it too much, but they think that, oh, yeah, you know, it, uh, there's some evidence to show that it works. And, you know, physicians are increasingly referring patients with pain for acupuncture. Uh, the biggest scandal, in my opinion, uh, about a year ago, I think, I'm pretty sure I talked about this on the show, is that the American Headache Society actually now recommends ac- or lists acupuncture as a recommended treatment for migraines. And uh, even when the the evidence they cite to support that recommendation shows quite clearly that it doesn't work, uh, just absolutely astonishing. So about a, a year ago, a paper came out which was a meta-analysis of acupuncture for uh, various conditions, and the authors who who did the meta-analysis concluded that acupuncture is effective and that it was reasonable to refer to an acupuncturist, even when their own data showed that there was no clinically significant difference between acupuncture interventions and sham acupuncture. They they thought that there was a a small but statistically significant difference. Uh, That's what they concluded. And, of course, we 
roundly criticized the paper. I focused on their interpretation. David Gorsky had a lot of questions about the methods that were not really carefully spelled out in terms of the the details of the analysis. But even if you grant them the analysis that there was a small statistically significant difference between sham acupuncture, meaning you see they're just sticking the needles in the wrong place or you're not sticking it to depth or eliciting the decay, you know, that sensation that is supposed to indicate that you're whatever manipulating the key or the chi or whatever you're supposed to be doing um, versus quote-unquote real acupuncture. Multiple reviews have showed that essentially there's no difference between the two. Sham acupuncture and placebo acupuncture and true acupuncture all have about the same effect. Uh, a couple of reviews now, including this one, the lead author was Vickers. So this is the Vickers acupuncture meta-analysis. They they found a small uh, but statistically significant difference. So my point at the time was the difference between the sham and the true acupuncture was not clinically significant. And it is, it simply isn't, you know, by any analysis. It was such a tiny effect. Therefore, when you have a small – such a small effect – and we've said this before in multiple contexts that it's essentially within the noise of doing clinical trials. You know, the clinical trials are not rigorous enough that uh, you can be that precise, that a tiny difference, you could say, is a real physiological difference as opposed to just, you know, noise in the data. Well, the authors, Vickers et al., the authors actually published a response to the blog posts that were written criticizing their their original article in the published in the peer reviewed literature they actually got a response published which was a first as far as i can tell a peer reviewed published response to our blog post they specifically referenced my blog post about them in science based medicine uh david gorsky's and a number of others it was really it was really very whiny uh it was it was unbelievable i mean <laughs> Oh, yeah. So this is what they wrote in their article. Although there was little argument about the findings in the scientific press, a controversy played out in blog posts and the lay press. This controversy was characterized by ad hominem remarks, anonymous criticism, phony expertise, and the use of opinion to contradict data, predominantly by self-proclaimed skeptics. There was a near-complete absence of substantive scientific critique. (laughs) That... in fairness, you are self-proclaimed. That's the only thing they got right was that we are self-proclaimed. That that is complete hogwash. That entire characterization, and they cherry-picked the uh, responses. They they were not characterized first of all by ad hominem remarks. Some of us pointed out the fact that one of the authors was a homeopath. I'm sorry, but that's a legitimate piece of information. If you're evaluating a scientific Jeez. paper, the fact that somebody is a blatant pseudoscientist is relevant. <laughs> they they specifically referenced me to support their assertion that um, they were characterized by ad hominem remarks because I said that their discussion showed a pro acupuncture bias. That was their example. Oh, of that's an ad hom. That was an ad hom. Whoa. I, easy, I was being easy. charitable by saying that it reflected right? bias because it was blatant nonsense is what their conclusion was. But that's an ad hom? In their mind. That's why I say I think it's just whiny. The anonymous criticism, most of it was not anonymous. All of us at some point in time put our real name 
to our criticisms. But, you know, a couple of, of medical blogs like ORAC, you know, they blog anonymously so they can get snarky and, and have a little bit of protection. But to say that it's characterized by anonymity is ridiculous. Ugh. Phony expertise, that's, that's an interesting one. So they claim that, you know, because we are not published and we haven't published acupuncture research, yes, uh, they miss what our actual expertise is. We are experts in the difference between science and pseudoscience. And it's that expertise that they lack that precisely is what bit them in the hiney and why they utterly failed in their original article. Rebecca, did, he, did he say hiney? hiney. I think he said Heidi. Oh, I think I heard. I, that sound like sounds like an ad hominem <laughs> to me. Sounds like something a six year old would say. It's, it's an ad hiney attack. <laughs> Let me focus on a couple of things where I think they went they went profoundly wrong. Uh, so first, one thing they did is they defended themselves by saying. Well, we're not saying acupuncture works. We're saying that referring to an acupuncturist works. What? <laughs> yeah. uh, distinction. Well, with what, no difference, what they're right? doing, that's one way to sell placebo effects, right? They're, yeah. they're saying that, well, because if you get referred to an acupuncturist, you feel like that you have a benefit. Even if, you know, if it's sham or real acupuncture, doesn't matter. The, the referral to an acupuncturist is effective. But you could say that about anything that doesn't work. You could say, well, you know, you refer, referral to a hypnotherapist makes people feel better, even though hypnotherapy, for whatever specific indication that you're talking about, doesn't work. A referral and to a blood letter works. The homeopaths made the same argument. They wrote an article a couple of years ago saying homeopathic remedies don't work, but referral to a homeopath works. That's just, it's a placebo. way of trying to package the placebo effect. It's intellectually insulting. It really like it's like putting a wrapper around bullshit and saying this isn't a, this is not a bullshit sandwich because there's a very thin foil wrapper around it. Yeah, but as soon as you bite into it, there's shit in your mouth. It's a <laughs> it's a shit hoagie. <laughs> it's a fecal taco. All it's a crap trap. It's an unfossilized <laughs> coprolite sandwich. Are we done? So yep. the, I think we did it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we didn't miss any crap humor. Not, okay. I'm pretty sure we got them all. Yeah. <laughs> so here's the, here's the thing. Turd burger. Turd, Turd burger. burger. The, the acu- Thank you. Yeah. Turd burger. Very good. The, yeah. the acupuncturists are desperately <laughs> trying to say that the that the placebo effect's real and <laughs> that real and remember all this real and fake acupuncture both work. The point that they're missing is that that comparison between no intervention and any of the forms of acupuncture, sham, placebo, or uh, or real acupuncture, that comparison is unblinded, and therefore it's unreliable. We cannot make conclusions based upon that because it's subject to all of the bias and illusion and statistical effects and everything that gets mixed in with the measured placebo response in the clinical trial. So I liken this to N-rays. You know, N-rays are there when you have an unblinded observation, and then as soon as you put in proper scientific blinding, the phenomenon vanishes. So does dowsing, right? You know where you know where everything is when you're dowsing. Yeah, 100 percent accuracy. Now blind exactly, it, uh, exactly. Random chance phenomena that vanish when you properly blind the observation are not freaking real. They're not real. That's how things that are fake behave. When you blind the observation, they completely go away, and that's what all of the acupuncture literature shows. When but you they can blind still be helpful. it, when you blind the comparison for needle position for insertion of needles. They, they have no effect. Now, 
the vast majority of reviews say that there's no, that there is no difference between sham and real acupuncture. A couple like theirs say that there's a small effect. Here's the other point of contention. So I wrote that the tiny clinically insignificant effect that they are claiming that they found is indistinguishable from no effect at all, that it overlaps with zero effect. And he, and Vickers, he, he tried to address that by saying, that, well, there are ways of calculating statistical significance and whether or not the confidence interval overlaps with zero. So he completely missed my point, which I then spelled out in, in great detail in my follow-up blog post about it. That is, we're talking about two entirely different things. He's talking about statistical significance. I'm talking about bias, systematic bias. Statistical significance does not address systematic bias because it's systematic. It introduces a, a measurable difference in the outcome because it's, there's some bias towards, you know, a positive result, which we know exists. And I gave examples of it. So he, I mean, he, if you were really paying attention, he would, he should have known what I was talking about. I gave specific examples of it, like the authors that published a study on the researcher's degree of freedom, and then they specifically applied it to BEMS ESP research. They showed that even with a zero effect, there's no real effect. You can generate a false, statistically false positive outcome by just manipulating certain variables like how many data points you collect and what statistical analysis you use, things like that. So That's the point telling. is, yeah, these, these tiny effect sizes are not reliable because the documented known sources of systematic bias would show a small statistically significant effect. This is why p-values and statistical significance is insufficient. This is also why we advocate a Bayesian approach where you to start with a prior probability, and then you calculate how much the data changes the prior probability, as opposed to just statistical significance. This is why statistical significance fails. This is why evidence-based medicine fails when you apply it to unlikely things like acupuncture. And this is exactly why we need science-based medicine. A proper science-based medicine approach to this data shows it's implausible to begin with, and you don't have the kind of evidence that is necessary to significantly move us from it probably doesn't work, which would need – what we would need is not only a statistically significant effect size, but a clinically significant effect size that's reproducible and stands up to proper blinding. We don't have that with acupuncture. You could take everything I just said and apply it to ESP research, and we haven't done that. We've made – this is exactly the same story with ESP research. Right? It's, they don't, they don't have those same, those things at, at the same time. They, they don't have a statistically significant and a, a large enough effect size that we know it's greater than just the bias and systematic noise that exists in research in general. Um, and that's why they don't hold up to replication. One more point. One last point. I don't like meta-analysis. I know some people do it really well. I know that like Edzard Ernst has made a career out of doing excellent meta-analysis and systematic reviews. That's why when he does it of alternative medicine, they're negative. Uh, but there are approaches that are better because the meta-analysis is still subject to the garbage in, garbage out problem. There is a, you could, you could do what's called a, a best evidence analysis, 
where you look at the quality of the evidence and how yeah. that relates to the outcome. And what you do, what you see with homeopathy or acupuncture, or any of these modalities, when you do that kind of analysis, is that there's an inverse relationship. The better the study, the smaller the effect size, and the best studies are negative. Or you get down to effect sizes that are clinically insignificant and that are totally in the noise of the just a baseline you know, of bias that exists in clinical research. Acupuncture is not real. But Vickers dug his, heel in, his heels in, didn't really understand or address our criticism, and just made this whiny, completely unfair uh, smear campaign against his critics. It really was very unseemly. You know, th- another key thing here, Steve, there's, there's two things I can pull out of this. The first one is that they truly don't understand science and they're being fooled by their lack of understanding. The second one is that they have skin in the game. They want to believe, and that's the thing that's, that's fueling this. This is why if you were to demonstrate to me that something is false, that I had some skin in the game on, I would be very willing and able to very quickly admit it and move on and let it go. I don't actually like anything that much that I have to completely blind myself to reality, but so I, I don't know how much all of that is true in this case. I mean, maybe the homeopath, but I, I think it's more because I think you know, generally what we see with acupuncture is a lot of people involved are are scientists who generally know what they're doing. They're just not skeptics. They're failing at these these subtle aspects of how to interpret the literature, and they're not adequately taken into account. Uh, things like researcher degrees of freedom and these other are sources of subtle error in the research. Uh, so that's where they fail. And it's, it's really no longer acceptable because, you know, we are pointing it out to them in excruciating detail. Uh, so they, rather than engaging w- where they start to move in the direction that you were paint- painting, Jay, is when they dug in their heels and got really whining. Yeah. And there actually are things that, you know, UJ would need to be blinded to. I mean, no matter how uh, open-minded we think we are, no matter how open we are, we think we are to changing our minds if we discover something, all of us have implicit biases that need to be controlled for. And that's the key bit of education that's missing, not just the general idea of how to do science, but how easy it is for us to be fooled. Absolutely. How, how yeah, easy I, our brains are, are tricked. I com- totally agree with you. I guess what I was saying, Rebecca, was that under the correct methodology, if something was disproved to me, if something came out to be false that I re- recently or long-term believed, it doesn't matter. I w- I'm capable of letting it go and not holding on for one reason or another, right? And I, I think that we see examples of this over and over again. You know, homeopaths, and chiropractors pop into the front of my mind as like people that are holding on to these dear beliefs of theirs, like to the end. It doesn't matter. Science is irrelevant to them. They they don't care about the facts anymore. Yeah, but Jay, I, I agree with you, but there are different flavors. And you're talking about one flavor of people who don't get it right, of pseudoscientists, the, the true believer, if you will. I'm talking about scientists who are just not skeptics. So these guys are not aware. They've, they haven't made a career examining ESP research and finding out why proponents of ESP, for example, think that they have found evidence 
of extrasensory perception when they haven't, and examining all the subtle ways in which they manipulate the data and their analysis and why, and why they fail, where they're, they, they twist their logic. So these guys are falling into the skeptical traps because they're not skeptics. They don't understand the principles of science-based medicine. Uh, they're just, you know, they're, they're naive. They are frankly naive about that degree of, of, uh, of problems, you know, the subtle problems that creep in. Now, yeah, there's, it's interesting, the different, the different flavors of, of cranks and pseudoscientists and just legitimate scientists who get it wrong sometimes and, you know, the ways in which that happens. I mean, that's what we study. That's what we are, in fact, experts in. So it was interesting that he sort of criticized all the things that are actually the reasons for why they completely failed. This might have been a good dialogue. They might have learned something out of this exchange. Uh, but it's an opportunity for us to explain their failure, at least. And that um, is a, a teaching moment, I guess. I would like a quickie with Bob. Ooh. Thank you, Jay. I will be gentle. Welcome to this week's quickie with Bob. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Uh, the, an astronomer has, for the first time in a century, discovered the closest solar system to our sun. It's a meager 6.5 light years, or about 38 trillion miles away, just around the corner, really. So we've got Alpha Centauri, which is about 4.4 light years away. Bernard Star, 6 light years. And now the third closest at 6.5 light years is called Wise J104915.57-53906. I, I really hope right they come up the with tongue. a catchier name soon. So what took so long to find it if it's so close? Well, it's a binary brown dwarf star system. Brown dwarfs are very dim since they can't fuse hydrogen like real stars. They're, they're considered substellar objects, actually. Um, they're in the zone between the lightest stars and the heaviest gas giants, the biggest being about 80 or so Jupiter masses, which is pretty huge, but even then still not quite a star. Most would appear not brown, but magenta to the human eye. I think we should call them magenta dwarfs. It was discovered by Kevin Lumen using the WISE satellite data. This has been your Quickie with Bob. I hope it was good for you, too. Okay, thanks, Bob. Bob, one quick question. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I always am a little uneasy calling them brown dwarf stars when they're not fusing hydrogen. Well, you know? actually, the, um, the brown dwarfs at the higher end of the spectrum can actually fuse uh, deuterium and possibly lithium. So, yeah, they're doing a little bit of fusing. At the high end, but, the one, but not all of them. Some of them are not that, fusing anything. That, not all of them, right? And it's still it's still controversial, you know, what, what, you know where the where the demarcation is for these types of things. Shouldn't they? Aren't they just really big planets? Or give them their own designation. I think fusing that it, yes it should be the cutoff for a star. You have to be fusing something to be a star. Right. I I agree. I agree. If you're so doing, what are if you a doing that? Star, yeah, maybe a protostar. Something something else other than just a star. Yeah, they're clearly not main sequence. They're not fusing hydrogen. But, uh, yeah, I think that that's a really good way to classify them. If you're fusing anything, uh, deuterium, lithium, whatever, then, uh, then I believe you deserve the moniker star. Well, I'm sure astronomers can come up with some category. Yeah, they'll figure it out. They figured out the difference between planet and dwarf planet. I think they can figure out the difference <laughs> yeah, between right. a real star <laughs> yeah. and a, a pre Take 20 star. years to yeah. agree on it, though. All right, Evan, are you going to finally tell us how we can live to be 150? Woo. Yeah, yeah, well. God, not a moment too soon. <laughs> so I read the news today, oh boy, and uh, this, is courtesy of, this is courtesy of the Daily Mail Online. Here's their headline. New drug being developed using compound found in red wine could help humans live until they are 150. Wow. So the first line of the article reads like this. Drugs that could combat 
aging and help people live to a 150 years old may be available within five years following landmark research. It continues. The new drugs are synthetic versions of resveratrol, which is found in red wine and is believed to have an anti-aging effect as it boosts activity of a protein called SIRT1 or SIRT1. So, okay, let's stop right there. At face value, this is pretty incredible. Wouldn't you agree? Mm-hmm. I mean, if this if this turned out to be true, I mean, wouldn't this revolutionize medicine? Would this not be the biggest advance in medical science in an age? I mean, really, think about that. A hundred more years, basically? You get to up to a hundred years tack on to your life? Right, Bob? How would you like to take a drug right now that will get you a hundred more years on this planet, Bob? On the surface, that sounds great, as long as they're quality years. You know, I don't want to be decrepit for 50 years, but the goal is always to increase your, your active, that, that part of your life where you are healthy and active and can do stuff to, to at least a certain degree. So that would Bob, be great. Bob, of course, but- taking the, the magical genie approach to this and making sure that his wish for to live a hundred more years doesn't result in a tragic irony. Right, right. I've seen lots of cartoons where that didn't happen. I would take 50 years of, you know, being physically able, you know, and then 50 years of of being a vegetable. But think about it. 50 years from now, you'll just plug into some virtual reality. So who cares what your body is like? Well, Well, yeah, I I can't disagree with that. I can't disagree with that. And then 100 years from now, you'll just upload into some, some computer, some robot. Problem solved. There you go. Thank you, Dr. Steve. Case closed. Doctor, I, I don't feel well. I might be having terrible neurological problems. Don't worry, sir. In 50 years, we'll upload you into a computer <laughs> and you'll be fine. Good news. <laughs> what I want to know is where the hell did they get the 150-year figure? Who pulled that yeah. out of their posterior? Uh, let's see. Who's the fellow? Yes. You ever heard of Dr. David Sinclair of Harvard University? Well, he seems to be the main force behind resveratrol research since the year 2000. And uh, his research seemed uh, promising for many years, so much so that GlaxoSmithKline, you know, this mega pharmaceutical company, real serious, they paid Dr. Sinclair and probably some of his colleagues uh, lots of money for the rights to continue uh, Sinclair's research. Sinclair himself was the one who came out and said, uh, I quote, some of us could live to be 150, but we won't get there without more research. That's all it takes. <laughs> so the man sort of behind all of this is the one who has thrown out the 150-year uh, number that, that the headline is going Bull with. Hockey. You know, grabs your attention. Yeah, right? No kidding. I I had to learn a little bit, little bit more about resveratrol, and uh, you know, I figured, well, how should I do this? So what's the first thing I do when I'm looking up a medical you, topic? You I bing it. Word. You bing it. <laughs> no, no. I do much, much better than that. I take the word, and I go to the science-based medicine website, blog site, and I plug that word in there. And sure enough, yep, Dr. Harriet Hall mentioned it in a blog not too long ago. And uh, she said, and she summed it up kind of decently, I think, uh, resveratrol allows overfed mice to live longer and stay healthier, appears to have a number of benefits in lab animals, but human studies have not been done yet. This was a little while ago. And appears that very large doses would be required. It's comparable to the amount you would get by drinking 200 bottles of wine in a day. Whoa. It's worse than that, actually. Yeah, it is it, it, it worse than that. So I did delve deeper than that, right? Because this all sounds good, right? Glaxo, you know, this big pharmaceutical company is putting all this money and, re, you know, extra effort into it. They've been researching it since 2008, and their efforts seem to be now bearing some sort of fruit, right? But not so fast, 
resveratrol has a longer history, and it has the it is the stuff that red flags are made of. <laughs> yeah. So I mentioned Doctor Sinclair, right? So he sort of is the man who who got all this going and did the did all the uh, early research on it. However, a three year investigation by the University of Connecticut. Uh, not too long ago, concluded that the uh, director of you know Sinclair's Cardiovascular Research Center falsified and fabricated data ah. at least 145 times over a seven-year period, even digitally manipulating some images using wow. Photoshop. About the yep. res- Reservatrol? Reservatrol? Yes, that's right. What that's the hell? Despicable. I mean, really? Fabricating your yeah, data. Okay. Yep. So that this went from potential... You know, drug to be researched for 20 years. Let's see where it could go to complete sham. Well, that, uh, that's not fair, though, to be honest with you. So, yeah, there, there's some shady stuff going on. But if we there, – there's a lot of other people are researching this too. And if we take some of that research at face value, we, we do have an interesting target here. You know, the, the CERT1 enzyme does uh, alter proteins and is involved with cell regulation and it can it doesn't it, it influences insulin resistance, for example. So this could lead to drugs that might have beneficial effects for diabetes or for other diseases. The big problem, the big problem is that, or the, I would say, there's two big problems. One is that we just don't have translational research in humans. And as as again, as listeners know, you can't go from the from the test tube to making claims about what's going to happen in people. Uh, just you can't extrapolate like that. And Two, which is related to the first, this is part of the reason why, resveratrol has a particular problem with bioavailability. And, and this is something that I've mentioned many times before. Drugs that work in petri dishes may not work in people because they're just not getting in the, in sufficient doses to the right cells where they have their action. That may be a killer for resveratrol. Just a, you would have to give it in toxic doses in order to get enough of it to where it needs to go to have an, a beneficial effect. But that doesn't mean that uh, that GSK or another pharmaceutical company won't be able to make a version of it that is that has better bioavailability and retains pharmacological effects that can be exploited in one way or the other. It's just another drug, and it may be useful in some way, but we're not there yet. But the the notion that this one drug is somehow going to make us live to 150, that is utter nonsense. There's absolutely no way you can extrapolate anything like that from the existing research. And there are there are huge hurdles in the way of even getting an effective drug, let alone a panacea like what they're describing. Part of the investigation that the University of Connecticut did, they uncovered that, unlike it was reported by the researchers who were doing the work, they feel, in their opinion, it a lot of the tests failed. It did not, and this is in the mice, right? I mean, it, it, it did not extend the lifespan of normally fed mice. And, uh, you know, doesn't it did not improve diabetes and did some other things that, well, Glaxo is frankly putting a lot of uh, money and uh, reputation behind. So, sorry, Bob, we got to find another way to get our get ourselves, you know, past the hurdle Something of work. Uh, figuring out how to extend our life significantly. Something will work the day after I die. Okay, Evan, I think we have time to get caught up on Who's That Noisy? Yeah, let's do that. So we had a puzzle last week. I'll read it to you again. A man from Ukraine had three sons. The first son was named Rob, and he became a lawyer. The second son was named Irma, and he became a soldier. The third son became a sailor. So what was his name? Sally. 
Wink Martindale. Oh, those are all really good answers. Oh, wait. Really good answers. The correct answer is, of course, <laughs> Ivan, Y-V-A-N. And as so many of our listeners correctly guessed, what you do is you take each of the sons and you look at their names and you spell it backwards, right? And you associate that with their, well, profession, I suppose. So Rob, R-A-B, become lawyer. So R-A-B backwards is bar. That's the bar, lawyer. Second son was Irma, and he became a soldier. Y-M-R-A, backwards, is army. So if you have a sailor as a son, sailor would be in the Navy, right? N-A-V-Y. Spell it backwards, it's Ivan. Y-V-A-N. Could it also have been Taub? Uh, boat, boat backwards? Or Ederip, pirate <laughs> backwards? <laughs> or, oh, that, that would have been clever. Nice. I would have given or her piss. Piss. Pit. Piss. <laughs> Piss. Ship? Oh. <laughs> All those are really, really clever. But, <laughs> but our audience, uh, hundreds of you got it correctly. Uh, so it was a big drawing this week. Out of so many correct answers, the winner this week, Sawyer from the message boards. Well done, Sawyer. From Lost. Cool. Well done, Sawyer. So we're going to put you in the drawing for the end of the year. You're going to join us perhaps for an episode of Science or Fiction in early next year when we have the grand finale drawing. And now, so we have a traditional Who's That Noise this week. I'm going to play for you a noise. But it's the com- It's uh, actually a montage of three different sounds, which uh, may appear to have nothing at all in common with one another, but they definitely have something common between the three of them. It's up to you, the listener, to figure out what these three sounds all have in common. So let's get to it. Interesting. Three very distinct sounds, all with a common, common feature. So, give us your best guess. You can post your answer on our forums, sguforums.com. As I say every week, and I mean this from my heart, good luck, everyone. (laughs) I always mean it from my spleen. I occasionally mean it from my kidneys and from my appendix. But seriously, we, we actually need to create a WTF at theskepticsguy.org for, <laughs> for complaints or something. Come up with something. <laughs> That's Little, a good uh, idea, Steve. Ombudsman station. Yeah. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready for this week? Mm-hmm. Completely. Uh, Rebecca, you missed a couple of good ones, but we'll I, see. Yeah, I know. Sorry about that, but That's I'm, okay. I'm ready to come back with a vengeance. Ready to jump back in. All right, here we go. Mm-hmm. Item number one, a new study finds that those infected with HIV have no increase in mortality if they are well controlled on medication. Item number two, recently published research finds that screening colonoscopy did not increase survival. And item number three, engineers have built a self-healing integrated circuit chip able to repair itself and resume function even after significant damage. 
All right, I'll say it. You suck, Steve. All right, <laughs> Re- Re- Rebecca, you go first. Uh, okay, HIV. I I can believe this one because HIV drugs have come a long way in the last, particularly like in the last ten, five to ten years. No, I mean, no increase in mortality is remarkable and amazing, and more than I would have thought. Um, I guess in my head, I was thinking that people who are infected with HIV, who go on the medication, who take care of themselves right now, starting now, would experience, would be fine, you know, minus a couple of years, maybe. Colonoscopy, not increasing survival, that idea blows me away, because I thought colonoscopies were one of those things that has been proven repeatedly to have benefit to people who are at risk or who, you know, once you hit a certain age, you get your colonoscopy. It's super important. So that idea really surprises me. A circuit chip that can repair itself and resume function. Yeah, uh, I can totally believe that because chips, technology in general, it's getting more and more biological-esque. You know, I think a lot of technology <laughs> is borrowing from biology and... I completely believe that they can make a chip that can repair itself, and it's awesome. So I'm going to go with the colonoscopy one, because that's the only one that sticks out to me as being being suspicious. I think that colonoscopies do, in fact, increase survival. Okay, Jay, you go next. Okay, uh, the first one about HIV, I agree with Rebecca's assessment. I, I believe it. I think that the medication has come incredibly far, and um, I'll take that one as science. The second one about the screening colonoscopy, I can't possibly see how it doesn't increase your lifespan. You know, other than maybe there's like low incident or something, I don't really know the statistics on it, but they find, uh, you know, areas that they need to cut out like polyps and they remove them and that those polyps do turn into cancer. So how could this not help? I, I, I'm very shocked to hear that. So that one is, is like tentatively going to be the fake. And finally, the last one's the self-healing integrated circuit chip. Wow. Uh, very cool. I can only imagine what they're doing. You know, maybe they're using some type of polymers or I don't know. I don't know how they're doing it, but we, I was waiting for something like this. And if it happens, I'm, I'm thrilled. Um, and just because of the strength of the, of the fact that the one about the colonoscopy not increasing survival, the screening not increasing survival, I think that's, that's definitely wrong. That is defection. Okay, Evan. Uh, HIV having no increase in mortality. Yeah, I mean, what Rebecca said, what Jay has said, I'm going to have to echo it. I'm leaning towards that one being science. Regarding the uh, screening colonoscopy not increasing survival, I'm trying to think of a way that this wouldn't be the fiction, and I'm drawing a blank, so I'll come back to it. Uh, About the last one, the self-healing integrated circuit chip. So this sounds like the Borg to me, which is, you know, in its own right, cool, and therefore should be science. That leaves the colonoscopy one, like Rebecca and Jay said. I'll jump on there and say that that one's the fiction. Moo. Sorry. And Bob. <laughs> Boring, I Okay, know. Uh, number one, HIV. I agree with Evan agreeing with Jay agreeing with Rebecca. The second one uh, seems surprising to me, as it was uh, to everyone else. Um, I know they changed the screening age for, I think it was in the forty mid-40s to like 50 or something, but still I think... It's uh, hard for me to, un- to believe that it uh, did not increase survival at, at all. 
Uh, the other end here, the, um, the integrated circuit that can heal. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I really, really hope it's true. I have read about electronics that they were developing, um, six or seven months ago that actually can decompose and actually disassemble itself so that, um, say, uh, say, uh, a helicopter crashes and you don't want your enemy finding your awesome electronics. So it, it could actually kind of just, just fall apart on its own and be unusable. So this is kind of related to that where it's actually healing itself. I really hope this is true. I, I don't think it's necessarily related to, to nanotech, but uh, I'm really having a hard time thinking of how they could pull that off. But I really hope that's true. And it doesn't really surprise me that much. So I'll have to say that the colonoscopy is fiction. Okay. So you guys are all yeah. in agreement. I guess I could take these in order. A new study finds that those infected with HIV have no increase in mortality if they are well-controlled on medication. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. Hooray. We, this is very good news. Reasons. Yeah, I remember, you know, I've been following this for the last 20 years, and the, the survival of people infected with HIV, you know, initially the effects were modest, but then they started to pick up, and then when the uh, the heart medication, you know, kicked in in the 90s, it really extended. I remember just a few years ago covering an article where uh, they found that those who were infected with HIV today had a life expectancy of, I believe it was like 40 years, which was good, but still not a normal life expectancy. Now here, a few years later, you know, I was wondering, when are we going to cross that line? When, do, when are we going to cross that line when their life expectancy is essentially normal? And apparently we have. That's I think great. it's one of the um, biggest wins for medical science in recent history. I mean, it's not a cure, but it's so close to, you know. Yeah, but... Basically turns into a chronic illness that's totally manageable. Yeah. It actually followed a very predictable path on, on how most medicine and medications work. Like it takes about 20 or 30 years and they can finally perfect it and get it to the point where it's really worthwhile. It's really well, I can't think of yeah, another been... disease that was a death sentence 15, 20 years ago that's now turned into a chronic disease because of medicine. I mean, I feel like it's it's really remarkable. Yeah, this is a huge win. And, I mean, isn't this the nail in the coffin of HIV denial? Oh, it right? should be. What are they They're, saying unfortunately, now? Unfortunately, you know, not even coffins are the nail in the coffin of HIV denial. <laughs> H yeah, HIV denial is die constantly. There was an entire, I was just reading the other day, there was an entire magazine devoted to HIV denial that mm. closed its doors at some point when literally everyone involved died of AIDS. So it's, uh, it's, I find those people infuriating. Wow. It's such yeah, a dangerous ideology. And unfortunately, I don't think that these advances stop it. Yeah. I mean, early on, they were saying, look, HIV drugs aren't really improving survival. That's because it's based upon a false notion. Okay. Well, now we've all but cured AIDS. Yeah. Now what, now what do you now have what? to say? Yeah. It's like the creationists. They'll, they'll move their goalposts. Yeah. They'll yep. come up with something else. Unsinkable yeah. rubber ducks. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's go on to number two. Recently published research finds that screening colonoscopy did not increase survival. All right, so the word that nobody keyed in on that is the key oh. to this item is screening. Yeah. I said it to myself. Uh -oh. I'm not lying. I, I As oh, opposed crud. to a diagnostic colonoscopy. Oh. But this one still the, is still the fiction. You guys are right. You scared me for a second. <laughs> That's subtle, Steve. Well done. Uh, I should have uh, totally uh, Don't give that. him a well done. He still loses. <laughs> we all oh. still won. Uh, it was, it was, a, so, but what the study did show was that, uh, about 25% of colonoscopies that are billed through Medicare are unnecessary. Hmm. And the reason for this is age. 
there is an age range, not just a minimum age, but a maximum age. Uh, so routine screening colonoscopy is not recommended for patients 76 to 85 years old. And any screening at all is discouraged in patients older than 85 Why? years old. Because the risks outweigh the benefits. Well, it's yeah, it's risk versus benefit, exactly, Evan. And if you're beyond a certain age, you're not going to live long enough to benefit from the colonoscopy, so you're being subjected to risk without the benefit. What if you're drinking a lot of red wine? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, you could individualize a little bit. Um, the, these are these ages, age ranges are based upon an average person. What, what if you're you know, 80 years old, but your doctor thinks you're as healthy as a 60-year-old. Or if your you know, family like, has a history of living into their hundreds. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. I think that's perfectly legitimate. In general, for most, that's, you know, the, the exception. The rule is that in these age ranges, you're probably not going to benefit from the screening. Again, this is all about screening colonoscopy. There is a distinction here. They do make a point of saying, hey, if, you, if you're bleeding at your rectum, you get a colonoscopy. This is not applied to that. This is only for routine screening, you know, in asymptomatic individuals as a way of picking up polyps that may eventually become cancerous, you know, so you could nip them in the bud, literally. Huh. Uh, uh. But, th yeah, this is um, – but, you know, you, can, you, won't, you won't live long enough to, to reap the benefit if, uh, if you're in that age range. So this brings us to number three. Engineers have built a self-healing integrated circuit chip able to repair itself and resume function even after significant damage. And this one is science. The, the researchers, the uh, engineers at Caltech, actually fried their circuit with a laser. And it, it was able to reboot after that to, to resume function. Here's the thing. The, the chip is not physically repairing the damage. Re, it's rerouting? It, it's re it's rerouting exactly. It's, re it's so um, integrated circuit chips are uh, vulnerable to damage because many of them. It's like the Christmas tree lights. One light goes out, they all go light, go out. You have one one bad circuit, and then the whole chip could be useless. So what this does is it the chip knows how to reroute around damaged pieces, and it does that. So the the researcher said it doesn't have like a blueprint of the whole chip. Because there's, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of connections there. What it does is you, it creates a, like a signal, like a, a, a problem with a known answer. And then it simply, uh, rewires itself and, you know, reroutes the signal until it gets the right answer that it's supposed to get. Does that yeah. make sense? So it's like, this operation should give me this answer. So I'm just going to change things around until the operation gives the correct answer and then you know, then it'll be functioning the way it's That is incredible. That really is genius. Yeah. Yeah. This is great, especially because I break everything. So <laughs> it's be right, very right, helpful right. for me. Mm. Yeah. So it'll make them more resilient to, to right, failure. Put those on uh, to anything going into outer space. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or also think of how great this would be for people in developing nations or for doctors working in war zones and things like that, or even military applications, I guess. In I've fact, got it. Military Wait, Rebecca, applications is the main one, probably. Rebecca, I've got it. What do let's, you got? Let's put them everywhere. Okay. Thank you. So you could. So now we could. We could really use our laptops as a shield against laser attacks, and uh, your still your computer will still be okay. <laughs> All those laser attacks, I know. Pretty cool. Yeah. So we definitely have to put these into killer robots. <laughs> that's that's the next step. It won't die. Did you guys talk about the Metagel? Last week at all? No. Did you guys see the this what? stuff? Didn't Metagel? Nope. This no. uh, researcher is working on this gel that is like 
like when you play Mass Effect, there's that's that's the meta gel is what you use to heal everything. And that's basically what this stuff is. But in real life, you smear it on open wounds, and it binds the wound together and and stimulates healing to to help it heal faster. It's like this miracle gel. It looks really cool. Google meta gel. Anyway. Oh wow. Know. Okay. Oh. The we'll look into self-healing it, yeah. circuit reminds me of it's very like future tech stuff. All right, Jay, I know you have an epic quote for our 400th episode. I do. I I love this quote and it's also a quote from someone that is going to be at Nexus. So uh, I'm killing two birds with one stone here because of course I do want everyone to come. Please join us at Nexus. We're having a fantastic lineup this year and I'm going to read the quote and then I'll tell you a little bit more about Nexus. Our inner weighing of evidence is not a careful mathematical calculation resulting in a probabilistic estimate of truth, but more like a whirlpool, blending of the objective and the personal. The result is a set of beliefs, both conscious and unconscious, that guide us in interpreting all the events of our lives. What Nexus speaker says that? Is that Malode now? That is. Ex- excellent, Steve. How'd you know? It just sounds like him. <laughs> <laughs> it's Melodino-esque. <laughs> I can't pronounce that guy's last name, let alone adding the word esque onto the end of it. What do you call that? Was that a gerund? No. no. What's esque? Suffix. Does anybody yeah. know? Yeah, well, well, it is it's a, a suffix. suffix. So you mean what type, kind of suffix? type of suffix. It makes it into an adjective. Leonard Melodinovis, sir. The man. <laughs> the legend. He will be at Nexus. Um, so please uh, take a look at our website, nexusnecss.org. Take a look at our list of fantastic speakers we have this year and join us. We have some awesome events going on on Friday night and on Saturday night. We have the live recording. We have a lot of fun things going on. And of course, yeah. of course, the SGU will be there. So come if you yep. can. April 5 to 7 in New York City. Check it out. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Steve, thank You're you. And welcome. I need to thank Thanks. one person. I absolutely well, have to thank someone, a, a listener of the show that went the extra mile to really help us this week. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to thank Rich Binder for doing an enormous amount of artwork for me very fast and at the last minute, and he pulled it out, and this was something that we needed to do for iTunes. So, Rich, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Let's do another 400 of these. What do you say? Another 400? Right now. I, mean, I think we could do. I think we could do that. 400. All right. Well, until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website. Or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice. Four hundred! <laughs>